He's alive. Great to be with you this morning. Let me get going here. It's a pleasure as always to be with you. We're, I have a um, message I'm looking forward to sharing with you this morning, but I'd like to pray one more time before we get started. Father, it is a great gift to be here this morning, and Lord Jesus, we just, again, we thank you that you're alive, that you are in heaven glorified, and Lord, in your glory, you're coming back one day. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to see the significance of the resurrection how it can change our lives. And I pray, Lord, that it would. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine you wake up one day and you receive a text message from a friend that says, you won't believe this. They found a cure for cancer. How would you feel? Well, it may depend. Imagine it would, you would feel differently depending on whether you had cancer or someone you dearly loved had cancer. But even if neither one of those cases were true, I bet it would, you, would, you, would, you would think, oh my goodness, this changes everything. I pray the Lord would help us feel this. So listen to me, church. 2,000 years ago, a woman had a brother who died. And her dear friend came up to her and said, I am the cure for death. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Lazarus, come out. Friends, if a cure for cancer would change everything. I want to tell you this morning, there's a cure for death. And it changes everything. So what I want to talk about this morning is three ways the resurrection can change your life. Three ways the resurrection can change your life. Number one, the resurrection gives us a new way of looking at the world. The resurrection gives us a new way of looking at the world. Number two, the resurrection gets us through life's toughest seasons. The resurrection gets us through life's toughest seasons. And number three, the resurrection frees us to live and die for something greater. The resurrection frees us to live and die for something greater. But first, 
Number one, what I want to talk about, the resurrection gives us a new way of looking at the world. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. The scripture is going to be up there on the, the screen for you, but of course you're welcome to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 11. The apostle Paul wrote this. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. If you go and look and read Corinthians in chapter 15, Paul is defending the resurrection from the dead. Apparently there was some in Corinth who was saying there is no resurrection, which is a serious problem. And Paul defends the fact that, they, that we will be raised from the dead by defending the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, that proves that there is in fact such a thing as resurrection. And if there is such a thing as resurrection and Jesus rose from the dead, then there's no reason to think that we ourselves won't be raised from the dead, as Jesus, in fact, said would happen. His resurrection is the proof of our resurrection. And so at this argument here that we just read there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that he delivered to them as of first importance what he received. Now, this is one of the clearest articulations of the gospel in, in, the, in the Bible, okay? So he, he's re, re, relaying to them what he says is of first importance, this truth that he received. In other words, the truth that Jesus at this very moment is alive isn't optional to the Christian faith. It's one of the essential core doctrines of Christianity. That is because Christianity isn't like other religions, right? Christianity is not first built around doctrines and religious practices. Now, we have those, but that's not what Christianity is built around, okay? That's not what Christianity is about, okay? Christianity is first built around a person. There is no Christianity without Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say, this is the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus didn't say, follow this teaching. Jesus said, follow me. Buddhism can live on with a dead Buddha. Islam can live on with a dead Muhammad, but, Muhammad, but Christianity cannot live on with a dead Christ. If, if they would have went to Jesus' tomb that morning, as we read about, and they got there and the tomb was occupied, we, would, we wouldn't be here this morning. We're, it, Christianity would be the biggest hoax and the most colossal waste of time in human history if Jesus' bones are still in the grave. And a lot of people wasted their lives for nothing. 
But if Jesus Christ is alive, and he is, then he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So what is the evidence that Jesus is alive? And this is what Paul is doing there in 1 Corinthians 15. He's giving evidence for the resurrection. Okay? And so, and so what is the evidence? Well, again, what's interesting is that the radical core of Christianity is not a religious doctrine. It is a historical fact. It's, 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 it's history. What is the first importance, Paul says there in verse 3, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's it. You want to know Christianity? You don't have, the, the heart of Christianity is not merely a book. It's historical fact. A man lived, a man died, a man rose again. Without that, there is no Christianity. And if that is true, it changes everything. And how do we know that? Paul tells us, verse 5. He says, he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then, to, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also, he appeared also to me. So just think about this church. Now, I don't, you, it's so simple, but I just don't want you to miss the weight of this because it's so important. How does the Apostle Paul know that Jesus is alive? How? He saw him. He saw him with his own two eyes. That's how he knows that Jesus Christ is alive. So don't, don't miss the weight of what we have here in the New Testament. Don't, don't let us think, oh, it's just some religious book. The, the New Testament and the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, is, was a letter written 2,000 years ago by a living, breathing person who said that he saw a man risen from the dead. You have, to, you have to reckon with that. You have to reckon with the brute historical fact that a man who lived and breathed wrote a letter to a bunch of people and said, I saw a man risen from the dead. It's not a myth. It's not a story. It's not a made-up tale to make us feel better about ourselves. It's a man who said, I saw a man risen from the dead, and I am not the same. And you know what? You know what else? I'm not the only one who saw him. Peter saw him, the 12 saw him, 500 people saw him at one time. And then he adds this little detail. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why in the world would Paul add that little detail? Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why would he add that? Because he's telling the Corinthians, what? If you don't believe me, go ask them. Go ask them. They're still alive. Go ask them. If one person told you that they saw something crazy, you might not believe it. But if hundreds of people all tell you they saw the same thing. And not only that, but the more you get to know these people, they seem to be really genuine people who really care about honesty and integrity and the truth. Just read the Bible. Okay? And not only that, but their lives seem to be really changed by the fact of what they're saying, that they saw him alive. And the more you get to know them, you realize that they're really honest and genuine and fair people. And all of these people together are telling you, hey, we saw him. Well, then what, should, what would you do? 
I think you should believe it. Right? And this, by the way, is what happened to the Apostle Paul. Right? He said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now remember, these early Christians, and even the Apostle Paul, right? They had everything to lose and nothing to gain from believing in Jesus. Seriously. Everything to lose and nothing to gain. Paul was a persecutor of the church, okay? He hated Christians. He thought they were a dangerous, heretical cult. Paul was a rising Jewish star. He, he, was, he, he trained under the, he was taught the Old Testament under the, one of the most famous Jewish rabbis in history. And he was so zealous for the Jewish religion that he, he persecuted Christians. And he was full bent on doing that. Until, until he saw him. He saw him. And he was never the same. What else could he do? Because he saw him. And he really did, at that point, lose everything. He, lose, he lost all his claim among the, the religious uh, elite there in Israel. He had to humble himself. He had to admit that what he had done, he had to admit all the evil that he had done in persecuting Christians. He had to admit and acknowledge that everything he did up until that point in his life was false. You know how hard that is for somebody to do? But what else could he do? Because he saw him. It changed everything about him. It, it changed his outlook on life. It changed the way he looked at the world. Because now he was finally, for the first time in his life, seeing clearly. Now, for the first time in his life, he realized the one thing that is worth living and dying for. How can the resurrection change your life? It can give you an entire new way of looking at the world once you see him. So number one, the resurrection gives us a new way of looking at the world. Number two, the resurrection gets us through life's toughest seasons. The resurrection gets us through life's toughest seasons. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. This is one of the most beautiful truths. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it's the truth that we must preach to ourselves and fight to believe in every day. You see, the world, the flesh, and the devil fight and war against our heart and souls every day to get us to think that this life is all that there is and that this life is all that matters. But Paul says that's not true. 
And by the way, I don't know about you, but if this life is all that there is and this life is all that matters, let me tell you, this is a mess. It doesn't give us much hope. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what the Bible says. The greatest suffering now is not worth comparing to the glory we shall experience then. If you read on through chapter 8, what Paul is clearly talking about, the glory that will be revealed to us, what he's clearly talking about is the resurrection, what he calls the redemption of our bodies, or he also says our glorification. Now remember who Paul is writing here. This is the, remember who's writing here, the Apostle Paul. So this isn't, this isn't a 21st century American who has enjoyed freedom and prosperity in unknown measure more than any other time in human history. This is the Apostle Paul who lived in the first century Roman world 2,000 years ago. Paul relayed to the Corinthians what he experienced as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one called by Jesus to proclaim his name among the Gentiles. This is what he told them happened to him. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jew 40 lashes Less one, that's 39 strokes. Five times that happened to him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And the same Paul who experienced all of those things said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory. That is to be revealed to us. It's just not. Paul chose to rest in the resurrection. The resurrection freed him to do what he, would, what he didn't have to do and what, he, what he, he otherwise wouldn't have done. It freed him to take risks, to make sacrifices, to face opposition. All of those things would have evaporated from his mouth if he would have just shut his mouth and kept on doing his life as a normal Jew. But he couldn't because he saw him. So he pressed through the pain, through the sorrow, through the suffering because he knew that no suffering could compare to the glory that he had coming. You know, and someone will say, Pastor, that's a nice sentiment. But you don't know what I've been through. You don't know the suffering I've endured. Nothing compared with that could compare with it. My pain, my sorrow, my suffering, nothing could compare with that. I just want to say, it's true that I don't know your suffering. It's true. But I also want to say this. The fact that pain can be so real and so great and so hard right now tells us 
that the glory that is coming is so great that it's unfathomable. I might not know your suffering, but dear friend, if you think that your suffering can compare to the glory that's coming, then you don't know my Jesus. Is your pain due to sickness? Christ will heal it. Is your pain due to loss? Christ will restore it a hundredfold. Is your pain due to injustice or evil committed against you? Christ will judge it. And far more righteously than you or any government ever could. And those who die in unrepentance and unforgiveness of their sin will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, which burns forever. And what, will, what was done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops. And everyone will see what, precisely what they are doing for what is done in the body. Pain is temporary, but Christ is eternal. And the Bible says that those who are righteous in Christ will shine like the sun in the glory of their father for a billion times a billion years. And shall we still say that the, pres- the sufferings of this present time can compare to the glory that will be revealed to us? No, it can't. Because of the resurrection, we can endure things that we would never otherwise be able to because we know that something infinitely greater is coming. In fact, so great is the glory that is coming to us through Jesus Christ that not only can we endure suffering, we can run to it. What would make Adoniram Judson go to Burma, bury three wives, work seven years to make one convert, and die and be buried at sea? Why? Because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the resurrection gives us a new way of looking at the world. The resurrection gets us through life's toughest seasons. And number three, the resurrection frees us to live and die for something greater. The resurrection frees us to live and die for something greater. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Finally here this morning, the final way that the resurrection can change your life is that it frees us to live and die for something greater. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the great hall of faith. They're the heroes of the Bible and they are represented as those who have finished their race and they are now spectators cheering us on as we finish our race. That we may join them and stand on the pedestal among those who receive the promises of God by faith. What I want to specifically focus on is verse... 35 there, it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. How's that possible? How can some be tortured and refuse to accept release? He tells us, so that they might rise again to a better life. You see, what's remarkable about the heroes of the Hall of Faith is that they faced opposition. They faced insurmountable challenges they suffered but but of course what makes them heroes is not that they suffered right anybody can suffer suffering doesn't make you a hero it's how you suffer they suffered for god they suffered for the promises they suffered without giving up without losing heart They went onto the battlefield against insurmountable odds, which humanly speaking is insane, but they did it not because they had faith in themselves, but because they had faith in God. They suffered. Many saints of past era, they suffered. Many saints today in other parts of the world right now are suffering at the hands of mobs and at the hands of governments. And, and they would be released if they just denied Christ and went along with the culture and went along with what was socially acceptable. They would save their lives and lose their souls. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? They refused release so that they could rise again. To a better life. You see the resurrection. It frees us. It frees us from fear. It frees us from this incessant. Urge. For self preservation. It frees us from the worldliness. That keeps us from standing for Christ. When it's hard. It frees us from the love of this world. And the love of this life. It frees us to take risks. And make sacrifices and do hard things for God that, humanly speaking, doesn't make sense. It frees us to love God and neighbor and make uneasy, uncomfortable, risky, and even dangerous decisions for Christ's sake. Why would people live that way? So that they can rise again to a better life.
You see, we were made to live for something greater. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, man, what's the point? What am I doing with my life? Is my life going to matter? Is it making a difference? Is there anything that I could do with my life that will matter a billion years from now? And I want to say, yes, there is. You can live for Jesus Christ. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. As we close this morning, I just want to read with you this, um, this eulogy. It was said by Archibald Brown. It was spoken over Charles Spurgeon at Charles Spurgeon's funeral. Charles Spurgeon was a Victorian English Baptist pastor, probably the greatest preacher in the English language the world has ever known. Life wasn't always easy for him. He lived in poor health. He suffered depression for a good part of his life. He wore himself out. Wore himself out working for God. And this is what his friend Archibald Brown had to say. Beloved president, faithful pastor, prince of preachers, Brother beloved, dear Spurgeon, we bid thee not farewell, but only for a little while. Good night. Thou shalt soon rise at the first dawn of the resurrection day of the redeemed. Yet is, yet is not the good night ours to bid, but thine. It is we who linger in the darkness. Thou art in God's holy light. Our night shall soon be past, and with it all are weeping. Then with thine, our song shall greet the morning of a day that knows no cloud nor close, for there shall be none there. Hard worker of the field, thy toil has ended. Straight has been the furrow thou hast plowed. No looking back has marred thy course. Harvests have followed thy patient sowing. And heaven is already rich with thine ingathered sheaves. And shall be still enriched through years yet lying in eternity. Champion of God. Thy battle long and nobly fought is over. The sword which clave to thy hand has dropped at last. A palm branch takes its place. No longer does the helmet press thy brow, oft weary with its surging thoughts of battle. A victor's wreath from the great commander's hand has already proved thy full reward. Here for a little while shall rest thy precious dust. Then shall thy well-beloved come. And at his voice, thou shalt spring from thy couch of earth, fashioned like unto his body, 
into glory. Then spirit, soul, and body shall magnify thy Lord's redemption. Until then, beloved, sleep. We praise God for thee. And by the blood of the everlasting covenant, hope and expect to praise God with thee. Amen. Death is not the end. It's just the beginning. Because I live, you also will live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our resurrection hope. And Lord, I pray that as stewards of all that you have entrusted to us, as soldiers in the commander's army, the battle is hard and wearying. But the reward is coming. Our rest is coming. So help us, Lord Jesus, fight to the very end. Help us, Lord Jesus, remember our resurrection hope. And Lord Jesus, I pray this morning for someone listening to this sermon, in person here or online, maybe there's someone, God, who deep down in their heart of hearts, maybe for the first time this morning, by your spirit, in their heart of hearts, for the first time, they're seeing you by faith, alive and well, at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. I pray, Lord, for this person, that they would, that they would cling to your life, your death, your resurrection, for the forgiveness of their sins, and for their own eternal life. Bring in the sheaves, God, from our sowing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song of response. The altar is open. This is a wonderful time to come and give thanks.